Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. We have a group of terrific guests, and we will be answering questions from folks in our um, webinar audience. And then, of course, this will go out to our whole podcast audience. I just remind people in the webinar audience that they can pose questions in the Q&A sec- section of the screen, and we will try to answer them. I'll moderate the questions, uh, and I will try to get to all of them in one form or another. We are joined today by Asha Rangappa. Asha is a senior lecturer at the Yale University Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, a former associate dean at Yale Law School, and prior to a current position, she was a special agent in the New York Division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. We also have Harry Littman. Harry is a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general. He is the creator and executive producer of the Great Talking Feds podcast. He's an L.A. Times legal columnist. He's a regular commentator on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News. Asha does that kind of thing. Between the two of them, they're kind of a media empire. Um, And then uh, we also have with us our regular Thursday uh, co-host, Ryan Goodman. Ryan is uh, co-editor of Just Security. He is a professor at NYU Law School um, and a pretty distinguished guy in his own right. I'm going to start with a question for each one of you before I start going to questions, which will be posed by the participants. And as I say, as you have a question, pose it in the Q&A section. Uh, but let me, uh, let me start with you, Asha. Uh, we seem to be in a period of a kind of a massive mobilization uh, on the part of your former agency, the FBI, and a number of others, both with regard to um, protecting the Capitol as we head into the inauguration. But uh, Uh, also with regard to figuring out how what happened on January 6th happened. What's your sense of the state of this investigation? And typically, how long does this kind of a thing play out? In other words, what should the, what's the arc of the story going to be for the average person who's watching it? I think the arc of the story, I would probably use 9-11 as a reference point. Um, There is the immediate reactive component, right? This thing happened, uh, this this criminal act, this terrorist act on our soil. And so, you know, the first order is to, you know, the, the crime solving piece of it, to gather evidence, identify the people who were there, uh, establish whether there was uh, conspiracies, um, go further into who was organizing that, who was funding that. So kind of get the, the picture of the people who, who perpetrated um, that attack. But then there's also the 
post-mortem of how did that happen? Because, you know, a couple of thousand people don't just manifest in the Capitol and rampage it without there being signs. And so just as with 9-11, this was the 9-11 commission, they reconstructed everything leading up to it because only by doing that are you able to identify where the holes are, where does um, either the internal practices, um, perhaps even the culture of the agency uh, create problems, um, but where also do our laws and um, you know policies, like where are there gaps on things that they just never imagined could possibly happen? Um, so, you know, I think, and then the third phase is forward-looking, right? So then it is how do we create the structures and the laws and the procedures um, and change the culture if necessary to be able to address this kind of threat moving forward. So I would say there's three phases. I think, you know, phase like the first one, the reactive, that the FBI is excellent at that. This is what they do. This is the bread and butter. They will round up all these people. Um, they will be excellent in putting together forensic and, you know, digital evidence and all of that stuff. Um, the second one to me, you know, like what led to the intelligence failure, I think right now is just a big black hole. It's hard for me to believe that, especially since 9-11 happened and we changed all of these things in order to make things like connecting the dots easier, um, you know, uh, facilitating sharing among agencies between state and federal and all of this stuff, um, how this was missed. And we've already gotten some very mixed signals on what they knew. And I think we, I think we can't even start to do um, a true deep dive until the Trump administration is out, because I suspect that many of the blockages came from some of the political appointees at the top. That's just my speculation. Um, and then I don't even think we've had, we have got not gotten to the, the third phase of the future looking, except for the immediate threat that the FBI has articulated for all of the capitals in all 50 states. I mean, we know that and we know they're preparing that for that, but in terms of long-term, um, I guess I'll leave it there. I, I, I think that's just a good way, a framework to help people think through all of the different pieces that are that's going on here. Super helpful. Um, so Harry, um, it's fairly straightforward if we have video of somebody breaking down a door or carrying out a podium or, or um, attacking somebody, the FBI has video and they get witnesses and they go and they arrest them. And the foot soldiers get arrested and they get prosecuted. But the more interesting story in some respects is whether higher ups have liability. And I think one of the central issues is an issue that was brought up effectively in the impeachment itself, which is um, this idea of inciting these events, inciting people to insurrection. The House says, you know, this is what the president did. Um, but that is a, you know, the, how one defines that determines legal liability. And there are all sorts of people who incited this insurrection by uh, promulgating the idea uh, that the election was a fraud or by um, uh, perhaps even, you know, egging on um, the, the, the people who ultimately participated in this insurrection. And then so you think, does Senator Cruz have liability? Does Senator Hawley have liability? Does Representative Gohmert or Representative Boebert have liability? How do, how do, you know, law enforcement authorities 
deal with that issue of the higher ups and the incitement and planning elements of this. Right. Um, first, uh, David, thanks to you and Deep State Radio for hosting this and Asha and Ryan, good to be with you. Yeah, you've put your finger on the big question because everyone to a person, including the Cruises and Hollies of the world, are ready to completely throw the book at all the insurrectionists. And there's no doubt it was a violent conflagration. But as Asha says, these things rarely come out of nowhere. And we have a lot of evidence already in plain sight, right? We have a, a um, course of conduct by the president. And I think the article of impeachment was purposeful in putting it in, but starting in December, come to the big rally, it's gonna be wild. And we, you know, we'll never be able to take back our government with weakness, the things that Giuliani said, the things that Trump said. The, the legal question that it poses, David, is about incitement. And in particular, what is the connection between their exhortations, including the whole big lie of the election and the obvious crimes that we saw? Now, it plays out very differently in a criminal context from an impeachment context, because in a criminal context, the Supreme Court has again and again emphasized the First Amendment uh, protections before somebody is actually imprisoned uh, and the need for the state to show imminent harm and to try to distinguish between mere um, advocacy of dangerous action and actually propelling them and most of the cases go the former way. But if you look at the fact pattern, what Trump did is certainly closer to the line. Now, the short and, and then just to finish that thought, impeachment and the like don't require that same kind of First Amendment overlay. There's no his his liberty isn't being taken away. It's rather just a judgment, a common sense judgment like any of us here would make as to um, incitement. In terms of law enforcement, there's been a lot, I think there's been overemphasis on some of the things that the acting officials have said uh, when they finally, for example, had a press conference. You know, the, the Merrick Garland crowd is to arrive in about a week. These guys are thinking mainly about trying to hold on and keep their jobs, not get out front of them too much, but, but be responsible. The short point here is, this kind of judgment, the judgment about the relationship between surely Donald Trump, surely a subject of the investigation, and Giuliani and Trump Jr., and the obvious insurrection will be made by the Department of Justice. So sort of in parallel to what Asha said, it's their job now to gather everything. And uh, between social media and the selfies they all took, they, they very nicely uh, provided a lot of evidence. And it will really fall to um, to Garland to decide whether to, you know, step on the hornet's nest of a criminal prosecution of of Trump for this uh, conduct. So it will first play out, I think, in the impeachment setting, and then there will be a DOJ that I think was predisposed not to. Uh, kind of take on the the trouble of a Trump prosecution, but. And this last episode and its insurrection at the heart of democracy is something that can't be ignored. So they will look very carefully and it will be about that judgment of, you know, is he inciting or is he just kind of doing um, 
energetic political speech. So let me go to the next uh, question, which is from me for, for Ryan, and then I'm going to open it up. We've already got a batch of questions in from the audience, but if you've got a question, pose it in the Q&A section. We'll try to get to all of them. We'll try to answer fairly quickly because I already see there are going to be a bunch of them. But, but, but Ryan, I'd like to turn to sort of the third leg of the stool here, and that is what happened yesterday, the fact that the president of the United States was impeached for a second time. Uh, he had, there was more bipartisan support for this impeachment than any other in our history, although the bar for that is pretty low since they tend to be pretty partisan affairs. 10 people from the GOP voted to impeach uh, the president. But now we know we're not going to have a trial until after the Biden inauguration. Does that sort of moot the importance of the rest of this? Is this thing going to peter out as Trump is no longer in office? Um, or do you think that the momentum um, behind punishing him and perhaps removing him from uh, being able to ever run again for office is sufficient uh, to keep that as a kind of first priority for the Senate? So um, I think that, you know, it's who can tell, and I guess in a certain sense, whether intentional or not, I think Mitch McConnell has bought himself a lot of time to make that determination for after January 20th in terms of which way the winds are blowing and whether or not he wants to um, marshal the Republican forces to get to the 17 Republicans needed for a conviction in the Senate. And the which way the winds are blowing uh, could be uh, a number of different variables. So one, um, in a certain sense, upside for the House managers and the prosecution of Trump in a Senate trial is that by that point, Senators Ossoff and Warnock will be uh, sworn in. And many people didn't focus on this, but if you actually had the trial right now, it might require, it would require 18 senator, uh, 18 Republican senators to favor conviction. And after they're sworn in, it'll uh, require 17 uh, Republican senators to favor conviction of, assuming it's of all the senators present for the trial, which one should assume that. So I think that's one variable. Another variable is just to kind of combine some of the discussion is the issue of whether or not the federal authorities will move against Donald Trump after January 20th when he no longer has immunity from indictment under even the most aggressive theory by the Justice Department. After he leaves office, he's not immune. They can indict him for crimes other than the Mueller report in terms of obstruction, for tax fraud, uh, and uh, other you know, uh, endless, an endless list. In addition, just to add one piece to that is the DC authorities. So that the general count, uh, um, the attorney general for DC city is looking into an investigation of Trump for incitement to a riot under DC federal law. So that's another piece that could happen or New York authorities kick in Right after January 20th, I think that it looks like they have a robust case against the president for tax and other financial crimes. And that could seriously change, I would think, the political ones as to whether or not Mitch McConnell and the Republicans feel like he's at his weakest point. Now's the time to strike. Okay. So I've already got a whole bunch of questions. So I'm going to just run them by you guys. And we'll be quick. Uh, and yeah, and just give us fairly quick answers. Um, uh, uh, let me start with uh, you, Asha. There's a question that says, 
What do you think the greatest threat will be up to and around Inauguration Day, the ceremony itself for the threats out in the state legislatures uh, and out of outside the Beltway? Yeah, I'm, I'm not that worried about the inauguration um, because DC is a place where, you know, the, the entities, despite their failure last week, are quite used to dealing with large crowds and security and officials. I mean, they have, you know, high level state visits. I mean, you know, th th this is something that they're used to and now they're alerted to the threat. They put the National Guard there. Um, they're going to beef up all of the security, you know, law enforcement, uh, federal agencies. So I am less worried about that. I mean, it would take someone with like, you know, luck and a lot of planning to, to pull something off, in my opinion. You know, not, I, I, I hope that that is going to be true. Um, I'm more worried about the state um, legislatures because you know, you're really relying on, on the state and local law enforcement to do the security. I mean, you have, you know, for example, the FBI will certainly be, they will have command posts, they will have, be passing information to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in those field offices and making sure it gets there. But, you know, to, to act on it very quickly, um, you know, the FBI isn't providing, you know, our Secret Service can't provide security to all 50 states. Um, they are relying on those local and state uh, forces. And, you know, I suppose if the if the states decide to call them out, their own National Guards um, to protect those places. But it's also that the, the threat is not clear what it is, right? I mean, it's right now it's to the capitals, but there are also soft targets that, I mean, you know, it's just, you just don't know. Um, and to me, that is more amorphous. Okay. Harry, what can we do to deter radicalization of white supremacist Q QAnon conspiracies and the like? In other words, I think the key here is um, how, how can we keep this problem from getting worse? We, we believe in free speech, but, um, Clearly, new social media, the evolution of the kind of right-wing infosphere, uh, this has contributed to it. Are there ways that we can limit this? Or do you actually think going forward, this is going to be a growing risk? Uh, both. But I, I think there are definitely ways to limit it. Uh, you know, there was a lot of domestic terrorism in Pennsylvania when I was U.S. attorney. And look, these are, these are terrorists. They want to terrorize. And I actually agree with Asha that Washington is not that big an issue because they're, they're wanting to make people afraid beyond, I think, their actual numbers and abilities. But how do you do it? You decapitate them. That is, you find out who, and, and we're way past First Amendment concerns. The, these are loose consortiums, maybe five or six. You bring down the top dogs, and there are top dogs. It's like any other social setting. And these, th these um, entities are intensely social, almost sort of in a junior highway. And you go to the, to the top and bring them down. And that's why federal law enforcement is well suited here, because they can go across jurisdictional boundaries and the like. But that's the short answer, like any other group. Big, you know, Cosa Nostra or two block drug place, you, you get to the top and you take them down with anything and everything you have. Well, okay, Ryan, here's, a, here's, a, here's one. Um, 
there, there seemed to be, a, among other breakdowns here, a breakdown between the Capitol Police and the D.C. Police. The D.C. didn't have the ability to call in the National Guard because D.C. is not a state. Um, do you think that the security issues associated with this uh, may fuel the discussion about whether D.C. actually becomes a state? Um, I think so in some regard, because it's the most uh, anomalous situation for the mayor of D.C. not to be able to um, have the authority that all governors of other states have um, in the ability to call out the National Guard. And the lines of authority and command are so confusing that many experts that look back at what happened on January 6th attribute some of it to the just blurring of these lines and the inability as well for her to be able to summon the, her own like National Guard for the purposes. So you could imagine that that would be a part of the calculation. Um, I don't know to what degree that on its own um, is going to galvanize more political pressure towards DC having its own statehood. Um, and it's also because now there'll be a more friendly um, White House for the needs of the DC mayor. Question here about Russia. I'll come back to that a little bit later uh, because I want to work through this sort of group of questions. Um, Asha, one issue um, we alluded to for, for a little bit earlier, but I'd be interested in what your instincts are, um, has to do with the involvement of members of Congress in fomenting this. Uh, and there was a story, um, uh, one New Jersey representative uh, alleged that she saw another a member of Congress leading groups through the Congress the day before. Other members of Congress have now spoken out, one of whom did it in a kind of, you know, you know, kind of a way that was kind of like, well, I can't tell you who it is, but she said she wanted to carry a gun around. She's new and her name rhymes with, you know, Hobart. You know, it was it was not quite like that, but it was it was pretty close. Um, uh, it's unprecedented, I guess, but it's 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 there's a very real possibility here. What 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 do you think? What do you think we're going to see? I think they're all going to get interviewed by the FBI. Um, you know, and there's surveillance cameras. They'll be able to go back and see. But there's clearly some very troubling evidence that we've just heard uh, in the public domain, right? Or that, that some of the representatives have noted. I think Representative Clyburn said that there were people who went to the office where he normally does his work, which is not the same office that bears his nameplate and that that would uh, require some kind of insider knowledge on, you know, that it was not an easy one to find for people to find, you know, to come there. Um, I think uh, Representative Presley said that the panic buttons in her office had been ripped out and not ripped out, you know, by the people who were, you know, doing the rampage, but it sounded to me like they had been ripped out ahead of time so that when she went to use them, when she took refuge in that office, it was not available to her. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the, the uh, tours that were being given in violation, I think it's really important to mention that that was in violation of the uh, rules that were in place to not give tours, um, even by, by members. So it, it raises a very, um, you know, those are leads that need to be followed up on. And there's nothing about their status as members of Congress that prevents them from 
you know, being criminally liable if they were involved in planning this. Um, you know, the the representative <laughs> whose name rhymes with Hobart. Um, I mean, there was a point where she was giving a speech on the floor and was referencing the people outside the door that you could hear coming in and did not seem surprised by it at all. It's almost like she had timed it or, you know, like, it's like, they're here and these are the people. And it's like, well, you know, do you not care that they're, you know? So I think that, we're, you know, they're gonna look at all of that. Um, you know, Harry can speak to the uh, elements that would need to be proved for different kinds of liability. Like, you know, were they aiding and abetting? Were they actively a part of the conspiracy? You know, did they, did they not know? Did they think that this was just gonna be some kind of, you know, symbolic thing that was all gonna, you know, that was gonna be a spectacle that they could campaign off of. I mean, I, I think that this kind of result is reasonably foreseeable in my opinion, but um, all of that will have to be looked at. I will add that those people, should they start um, deleting or destroying communications or talking to people that they were in, you know, in touch with and asking them to change their stories or, if they lie to the FBI, when the FBI comes and talks to them, those will definitely be crimes that they will be on the hook for, what, regardless of what the underlying uh, substance of their conduct was. So um, I hope they've gotten, I think they need to lawyer up is basically the bottom line. Uh, yeah, it seems like that. Harry, if you want to address that, you, you can, but let me ask you another question that somebody's posed here, which which kind of crossed my mind, which is, doesn't this kind of a situation create an opening for outside bad actors? Like, you know, there's a lot of things that could be done on social media with disinformation in the run up, in the run up to the inauguration that um, could, could be quite destabilizing. Uh, so, you know, did, did, is that something you worry about? Well, look, I think that's potentially happening. I've suggested, I don't mean to be cavalier about this, but I've suggested that they're kind of punching above their weight the same way we felt after 9-11, that people were able to pull it off with the element of surprise. But I, I don't think any, I don't think they're going to be able to pull off some grand attack. On the other hand, disinformation, getting people totally frightened, and maybe even as Asha suggests, sort of an isolated um, actual operation in, in some state is certainly possible. Back to Asha, right? It, it is mind boggling, if true, that the members of Congress would have facilitated this. And you just have to imagine, I mean, some of them are pretty crazy in and of themselves, but I think in some way they think of this as like a, they think of it cynically as a kind of game for political um, advantage, because these people are so uh, numerous. And they're sort of like the people at, I don't know, a Star Trek convention, revving them on, but not really believing it. But it doesn't matter for criminal liability. They were playing with fire and fire broke out. And um, reasonably foreseeable, the phrase that Asha used is, in fact, the key one, because if they were in any kind of agreement with these folks, whatever happened that was reasonably foreseeable, whether they wanted it or not, they're on the hook for. If it's really true that they were, you know, playing fast and loose with trying to make this happen, they're in a world of hurt. Oh, by the way, and that's besides the initial possibility of just being expelled from or, or um, not seated in Congress next time around. Ryan. Yeah. Just to say a couple other words. Um, one is I, think 
Um, when we're talking about what is reasonably foreseeable, it's the question of whether or not the use of violence and things like that were reasonably foreseeable. But if the members of Congress were indeed facilitating these individuals from entering the grounds and the building of the Capitol, um, which is a restricted area without lawful authority to do so, that alone uh, would be enough. So if there's any idea that they thought this could be like, we're gonna create our mobs, like the quote unquote anti-Kavanaugh mobs inside the Capitol to put pressure and be in the faces of other members of Congress, um, they would already be in some severe uh, legal liability zone. And then I just wanted to say one other point very quickly. If I were to, because there are two questions that have so far come from the audience about this. If I were to worry about what's the one scenario in which DC might be most vulnerable between now and the inauguration, I do think that these actors are punching above their weight in many respects. But the one thing I worry most about um, are extremists and white, uh, white supremacists inside potentially uh, the National Guard, the Capitol Police and others. And I thought it was wonderful and great that the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a military-wide statement to all forces that said, basically using the words insurrection, said the law must be followed and uh, we have vowed to take an oath to the constitution and Biden is the legitimate next president and he will be sworn in. But why did they do that? I think it's because they have a concern about some members within the armed forces and potentially the National Guard. And that's my concern uh, for what they could pull off. Um, because then the very people that we're describing as this force of immense protection might have within their ranks, uh, some unstable people. You know, that's a, there's a question on that and I was gonna bring it up to uh, Asha. You know, as we start seeing people get arrested, uh, there's a disturbing number of them who are cops or firefighters or former military people. Um, it raises a real question about those groups at a moment when we already had a lot of questions um, about, about those groups. Uh, how do you think this is going to color that? And what do you think can be done to address the issue that Ryan is raising? Yes, I think there's the micro issue and the macro issue. I mean, this is a vetting issue. Um, the, this should be a red flag for any organization that has found uh, people like this in their ranks to Revet and then also reevaluate how they scream. Um, and you know, this is what you do when you have a security breach, an internal security breach. After Robert Hansen was arrested in 2000 for spying for the Russians for 17 years, um, you know, the FBI started polygraphing everyone and polygraphing them every five years. This is what you do, and uh, probably taking much more care with things like foreign contacts and, and stuff during the background check. So. Um, you know, these local and state police departments, and I'm assuming the National Guard and military, I mean, they're not doing full background checks, right, of the kind that people with access to top secret information necessarily go through, but they need to be doing some kind of character, you know, um, you know, assessment, um, and probably, you know, starting at looking at their digital uh, communications as a part of employment. I mean, that that's just, you know, 
I don't know what kind of civil liberties issues that gets into, but that's really where you're going to find um, if, if this kind of bias exists, because that's what it is. It's bias that is then going to affect their ability to do the job. The macro issue, I think, is about the ideologies that are being put out there. And I think QAnon is incredibly dangerous in this regard. Um, you know, white nationalism, the KKK, there are not a lot of people who want to come out and be like, hey, I'm part of the KKK, right? Because it's uh, clearly a hate organization that has engaged in terror against, you know, I mean, no, like it is, it is not a badge of honor or something like that. But QAnon has been very, you know, first of all, it's kind of like this loose, you know, uh, ideology, but it's also framed in a way of trying to protect children um, and the country. And so if you're in a media ecosystem where you are getting these messages and, and you're starting to become radicalized into this, particularly for people who have been trained to serve their country and to defend the nation, it is scrambling that sense of that, right? So they, you know, they're not, they, like, if they are really going into the Capitol because they truly believe that an illegitimate government has taken power in order to establish a global child trafficking networking ring, you know, to promote child cannibalism. I mean, where, what do you do with that? Right? Like that's, you know, that, that's, I think, and I think that's how you are getting some of these people who are like former Marines and law enforcement. They think they are actually engaging in an extension of their protective mission you know, and some of them could be complete racists who are just, you know, part of the, the KKK, but I think there are some of them that are have, you know, this, um, and we have legitimized that by the way, because they have representation in Congress. They're actually politicians that are representing these beliefs. I mean, it's crazy. So there's a certain political legitimization of this belief system that is then also motivating it. I don't even, I mean, I think it would take like three podcasts to start, you know, really picking this apart, but I think that's your big problem here. Well, I'm, I'm willing to go a, f a few more minutes picking. Can it I add just 30 seconds to Asha? Well, well I'd, I'd like you to, okay. but I'd like to right. frame, I'd like to frame it as a question because All right. this relates to the issue also of taking President Trump off of social media. Yeah. You know, there, there, there is a now, a, you know, a big debate around that issue and, you know, First Amendment rights versus the rights of private companies and, and so forth. But, but, but it does seem that at the heart of what happened, there are a lot of questions about how far government officials can go, what is acceptable, what crosses the lines, the traditional legal lines, you know, which we're shouting fire, you know, fire in a crowded theater or, um, yeah. uh, you know, doing, taking uh, an action that might cause public harm. Um, and, you know, I'm not 100% sure we're, we're we're ready for that discussion, Harry. You know, I mean, I, I you know, it's a this is a big next generation First Amendment discussion. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, it, and it does dovetail with what I wanted to say first. Yeah, I share your both concern and kind of skepticism that it's any kind of real um, solution. People are gonna communicate, and they, it, you know. The power of a, of a Google plus Facebook plus Twitter is is so profound. It's it's akin to the government, and yet they're able 
to uh, keep people off. I think they're drawing the right line. That is, you know, what they've said is once you get to a point where you're inciting violence, we don't want you on our platform. That strikes me as legitimate, but the broader implications of shutting people off and they're doing it, I think are, are serious. On the other hand, we've also seen, they always find out this all evolves so quickly. The point I wanted to, to make uh, that dovetails with this is, these are really intensely social people. This is how they, they, they're in a sort of jockeying for status among themselves. And it's not like, say, the lone wolf in Nashville. These are groups that can be sketched out by their neighbors and, and former members. And that's just a bounty for law enforcement. It's not going to be that hard to you know, figure out what's uh, going on with them because they are so social. That's sort of, the, I think, the raison d'etre of the group. And it kind of works in a, you know, who's got, who's, who's more of a, terrorist. I'll kill Pelosi. No, I'll kill Pence. But I, but I think for law enforcement, the implications are they can be brought down. So I, I share your concern and think it's not a long-term solution anyway, but, but the fact that they're so intensively occupied with it has an upside for law enforcement. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this? Because it's, it's a big issue and it, you know, going forward, you know, Asha's right. We're going to enter into a kind of a post- 9-11 investigation about how did all this happen? And there are gonna be questions for police forces and fire departments about how do you avoid white supremacists in these places? There are gonna be questions about how do you monitor these kind of things to avoid a security risk? And when do you flag somebody? And when do you stop somebody from using a platform? And when do you arrest somebody? You know, There's gonna be a sort of a hierarchy that's gonna to have to be established and probably fine-tuned. What are your thoughts, Ryan? Um, I guess I, just to dovetail with something that Asha had said and then maybe differentiate on one thing, but I'm not sure if, it's, if we do disagree on it or it's just to add to it in a sense. So the one is I, I do think there's something about government service might reduce people's expectation of privacy so that if they're gonna be in the National Guard or the military, or the Capitol Police, then maybe they do need to relinquish uh, the, some aspects of their privacy so that their social media communications are monitored. Um, and there's so many different ways with AI and other means to monitor whether or not somebody is turning towards extremist and conspiratorial uh, forms of the information environment. So that's one piece. Uh, I, I think there's something there. Because uh, I was also thinking, like, how's Asha going to answer that question? That's really hard. <laughs> how are you going to stop this problem. level of radicalization? And that's a tool. That's a tool. And it's a legal tool um, as well. So there's that part. The second is, but Asha, in some sense, you had raised it also as a kind of a question in your three-part framing at the beginning, which is what evidence we see about the incredible intelligence failure does also for me raise the question of, was that because they were reluctant to um, issue a warning about Trump MAGA friendly protesters? And it, therefore it's because of political pressure. So that will be removed to some de significant degree after January 20th, or is it much worse? And it's about very severe bias within, these age, within the personnel. Um, and the bias could be implicit bias and it could be explicit bias. There's a piece in NPR today that is kind of a scoop and a blockbuster about the fact that the FBI and DHS did not even issue, did not even issue threat assessments 
or a bulletin ahead of the January 6th events. Even though where, they had actionable intelligence. Uh, yeah. And they said they didn't do it because they were worried about First Amendment protest rights, but they've done it time and every time, as far as I understand it, or time and again with the BLM peaceful protesters. Yeah, and, and I should add, by the yeah, way, the yeah. city of New York said that they passed on their intelligence that said this was going to happen to the Capitol Police. So they had it already. Yeah. So I wonder if we have the, that systemic problem um, and how we grapple with that. And, and the first part of it might be identifying it <laughs> uh, before we can uh, address it. Yeah. No, well, these are, you know, all interesting questions. We have very little time left. Uh, we have a lot of questions. I've tried to synthesize a number of them in my last few questions so that we covered as many as possible. There was one question from somebody, and I'm just going to read the question to give you uh, a, a sense of it. I'm going to ask you all the same question and give you a minute each to answer it. But it's it, it says, I, I teach American government at a conservative Midwestern university. And after many years of doing that, I'm losing heart. My students feel checked out to me and I don't blame them. Everything seems so dire. My conservative students are embarrassed and my liberal students are horrified. Can any of the guests see through the events of the day to come to some kind of good outcome? Is there something I can tell my students to look for in all this as a sign that our democracy can heal itself? 60 seconds of... What's the good takeaway out of all of this, starting with Asha? Well, they've basically gotten a civics lesson over the last four years. I mean, about things mm -hmm. like checks and balances and how you know our government should work and also about engagement, um, things like protest and uh, you know how to get involved. And that I think is really the key. It's, a, it's an amorphous thing. It's not an overnight uh, fix. But increased civic engagement is what will create a healthier democracy. Um, I would say that that also means a certain amount of um, self-policing of behavior. And I think social, you know, uh, reducing the use of social media is going to become a part of that. I, I believe that social media is going to become like kind of a public health crisis <laughs> over the next decade. And then we're going to start addressing it in that way. And I think in many ways that will dovetail with people, you know, starting to get back um, uh, engaged again. But yeah, uh, I don't, by, I don't by, necessarily by, have an overnight fix. No, no, by the, well, I don't know that there's a fix. It's just, what do we, what do we find in, in any of this that are, that are positive signs? But I would say, by the way, I saw a piece on, on one of the TV networks today about a former QAnon person talking about how she sort of got sucked into it on social network. And this point that Harry was making that it's such a social, you know, it's such a, a you know, club feel to the whole thing. And, and it just spins you up and spins you up. And it sounded like a, a, a psychological disorder. It didn't sound like I'm using social media. Uh, and so this notion of addressing it as public health, maybe, maybe something that grows. Harry, something good you take out of it. Yeah. Work. Well, look, God knows what took so long, but check out the last eight days. It's like everyone's finally seeing the emperor has no clothes. He's in a terrible tailspin, not just vulnerable, but his whole brand, if you will, is, you know, finally, he forced the issue of whether the election had been stolen. They finally had to stand up, many of them, and tell the truth. And the consequences have been extreme so you know very late and to and to limited effect the cavalry is coming in the second thing i'd say to this particular questioner is for your conservative students it's been so important these last few years and it should stay that way 
the notion that Trump and Trumpism are somehow conservative is so objectionable if you think about classical conservative values and the work to be done by conservatives, self-identified conservatives in repudiating him and you know saying this has nothing to do with Edmund Burke or whatever is really important for our national uh, zeitgeist since he's a professor. That is, don't play this simply in liberal conservative terms. He's just un-American and that's an important point, especially for conservatives to make. Great point. Ryan, something good? Sure. Um... I guess two quick thoughts are, as a segue from what Harry just said, think also about certain conservative voices that stood up like Liz Cheney um, at significant political cost herself and at the cost of putting herself at risk, physical risk in her family. Um, and she stood up and <clears throat> conservatives who work to defeat Trump as well because of their belief in their principles and are now thinking about uh, that there might need to be a third voice um, in the public space uh, because of this. Mm -hmm. And then the last one I would say is, one, thank God the folks who got inside the Capitol were that incompetent, um, bumbling idiots in so many different ways, thank God, and got unlucky uh, for other aspects of it. And what it has done is it's become a catalyst, I think, for dealing with white supremacy that would, I think it's mobilized a lot of attention around it, an issue that is otherwise under-resourced. And it's also good that it's being taken care of by the Trump administration, the FBI and the DOJ going hard on the trail of these people, rolling them up within the last few days so that it wasn't just something like the Biden administration was taking on, but we've actually, it's bipartisan, nonpartisan is a better word for it in how we grapple with this particular threat. Yeah, I guess I would add to that to sum up, you know, um, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, Americans always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. Um, and, you know, that seems to be the case here. The banners are going up in Washington right now for the Biden-Harris inaugural. The big lie was big, but it didn't work. Uh, the efforts to subvert the election were widespread but they didn't work. The mob descended on the Capitol, um, but they didn't stop the Congress from doing its business. Um, and we've started to see a degree of accountability. Uh, and so, although there's a lot to be concerned with within the body politic, uh, there are also some signs that the immune systems within that body politic are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, and it's not impossible that we could recover from this somewhat stronger. Uh, I think part of the reason for that is that we have smart, thoughtful people of conscience like Asha and Harry and Ryan observing and commenting and sharing their views. Uh, we also are grateful for the people who have joined into this discussion as a webinar uh, and have given us their very good questions which have guided this discussion. Uh, encourage everybody out there who's listening to Deep State Radio as a podcast. We do these webinars every so often. We limit the amount of people who can come. So if you see one and you're interested, sign up quickly because the space goes. Uh, and, you know, it does give a good chance to interact with some of the best and the brightest in the United States. Uh, until then, follow what we're doing at the DSRnetwork.com. If you stop on the membership button, you can go and give us a little support. Listen to Harry's podcast. Uh, Talking Feds, which is a great podcast. 
follow these folks uh, everywhere. Let's go to Just Security, where Ryan on a regular basis and his team are producing fantastic, fantastic work. Um, And uh, we'll see you all again soon. In the meantime, uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.